We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 341 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. It is the day of congressional hearing number two on the commander's workplace misconduct scandal. Happy congressional hearing day to you and yours. Uh, The first hearing took place on February 3rd. Remember, the day after the reveal of the name Commanders. Uh, That first hearing was deemed a hybrid roundtable, and that first hearing featured bombshell allegations from former Redskins employee Tiffany Johnston against Dan Snyder. Well, this second hearing will take place on Wednesday beginning at 11 a.m. Eastern. Uh, Note the time change. Uh, The original start time was 10 a.m. Eastern. The new start time is 11 a.m. Eastern. Uh, The second hearing will not feature Dan Snyder testifying. He has twice denied Congress requesting Dan to testify. But the second hearing will feature Roger Goodell testifying. As the great Devon Dudley once said, oh my brother, testify. Oh my brother, testify. Yes, thank you, Devon. Testify. And this hearing on Wednesday will take place off a bombshell report from the Washington Post on Tuesday evening. The Washington Post strikes again. Dan Snyder's favorite newspaper, the Washington Post. It is the Post that has led the way in the reporting on the workplace misconduct scandal. And it is the post that on Tuesday evening, the night before this second congressional hearing, revealed details on the alleged incident between Dan Snyder and a then Redskins employee on Dan's plane in April 2009. According to the report from the Washington Post on Tuesday evening, the former Redskins employee, quote, accused Snyder of asking her for sex, groping her, and attempting to remove her clothes, end quote. Uh, Yeah, I would call that a bombshell report. Hello and welcome to this Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, the only Washington, D.C. sports podcast for which there is a new episode every weekday morning out by the 5 a.m. hour and often out much earlier 
than 5 a.m. Uh, next segment, I will explore this major report by the Washington Post on Tuesday evening, including the timing of the report. If you think that this report coming out the night before the second congressional hearing on the commander's workplace misconduct scandal is pure coincidence, uh, you be wrong. Uh, as I tweeted on Tuesday night, Dan Snyder is being hit with the same gangsta tactics that he has employed for years. And you know what? That's not necessarily a bad thing. Also on the show, a special guest to talk actual commander's football. Yes, we'll talk actual commander's football, if that's okay with you. Eric Eager, the vice president of research and development for Pro Football Focus. You know, there is so much negativity, so much gloom and doom with the commanders right now, with all of the off-the-field stuff. How about we feel good about some football? You know, Eric Eager is one of the smartest people out there when it comes to analyzing the NFL, and he is bullish on the commanders in the 2022 season. And, you know, Eric is not some Commanders fanboy, okay? His is an objective analysis. And he likes a lot of what the Commanders have going for them. Uh, Eric Eager, with an optimistic view on the Commanders in the 2022 season, is on the way. Trust me, you do not want to miss our conversation. And I, on the show, will talk game one of the 2022 Battle of the Beltways, a battle of, yeah, two last place teams, a battle of two teams that could both be up for sale soon. The Nationals already are up for sale to at least some extent. The Orioles soon could follow, depending on what happens with the Angelos family feud. But the Nats won at the O's 3-0 on Tuesday night as Eric Fetty outdueled Jordan Lyles. And the Nats bullpen was excellent. Some very good pitching from the Nats over their last three games now. I'll talk about Tuesday night's game from both Nationals and Orioles perspectives. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Robert Krakauer with a question on the congressional hearing on Wednesday on the commander's workplace misconduct scandal, writes Robert. Has the committee asked or considered asking Beth Wilkinson to testify? It seems almost too obvious. Am I missing something? Uh, thank you for the email, Robert. Uh, yeah, so Beth Wilkinson, the attorney who conducted the first investigation into the commander's workplace misconduct scandal, is shielded from testifying by attorney-client privilege. Uh, her work in that first investigation in the commander's workplace misconduct scandal featured her as the attorney for a client that was either the NFL or the team now known as the Commanders. Uh, it's not exactly clear who her client was, but uh, as we have discussed on this podcast with one of our high-level legal experts, Neil Mullen, uh, that is the case. Beth Wilkinson is shielded from testifying by attorney-client privilege. In fact, Neil wrote this to me in an email this past December, quote, a lawyer's first duty is to the rules of professional conduct and secondarily to his or her client. The client owns the privilege and unless the client consents, the rules prohibit a lawyer from disclosing a client confidence to anyone, including to Congress, even in response to a subpoena. End quote. So Beth Wilkinson would not be allowed to testify before Congress unless permission was granted by her client, which was either the NFL or the team we now call the Commanders. And ain't no way <laughs> that either the league or the team 
would grant that permission. Email from Wendell Hicks on something that I made mention of on Tuesday's show, episode 340. Uh, That's something, the clip that went viral of Commander's players this past Thursday on the last day of the team's mandatory minicamp, the last day of school for the Commanders uh, this offseason, on a practice field dancing to what sounds like Atomic Dog by George Clinton. Uh, You win the clip, see number 34, Kristen Holmes, the corner who the Commanders took in the seventh round of the 2022 NFL Draft out of Oklahoma State. And you see number 19, receiver Markin Michelle dancing, including each guy at one point nearly doing the splits. This was a very impressive display. Well, Wendell sent me an email providing further clarity on the clip. Writes Wendell, I enjoyed your podcast today as always. I just wanted to clear something up that you may not be aware of. You referenced the two players dancing to the song Atomic Dog. Looking at the video, it would appear that both players were members of the fraternity Omega Psi Phi, which is often referred to as the Q-Dogs because of their Greek alpha notation. They likely weren't dancing in the traditional sense, but stepping in the mode of their fraternity. Uh, Thank you for that email, Wendell. And I did some research, and sure enough, it does appear that both Kristen Holmes and Mark and Michelle were members of the frat Omega Sci-Fi. So thank you, Wendell, for the intel. Uh, I was not in a frat in college. I did go to a lot of frat parties, and I did drink a lot of frat beer. Uh, I did mooch off a lot of frats in terms of their alcohol, uh, but no, I never did pledge. Uh, I was uh, I was okay without that. Well, whatever your social life in college was like, if you are wanting to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, know that Kellen Hunt will help you. Uh, Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people. No matter your age or situation in life, Kellen Hunt can and will get you the home that you want. All you have to do is visit closeitwithkell.com. That's closeitwithkell.com. From that site, you can book your call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. The Washington, D.C. area is a great area, but that does mean that buying a home in the D.C. area is competitive. The homes in the D.C. area are going under contract quickly after those homes are listed. Kellen Hunt understands the D.C. area real estate market, and he is here for you to listen to what you want, no matter your situation in life. Whether you are a first-time buyer looking for guidance, or you have a young family looking for a bigger home, or you're ready to retire and or are looking to downsize, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people, and he will listen to you. He's not just some know-it-all. He works for you. He takes in what you're looking for and then gets to work. Smart, attention to detail, creative. Put Kellen Hunt to work for you. And how about this? Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you the buyer get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing and he wants to help. So visit closeitwithkell.com. That's closeitwithkell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. Visit closeitwithkel.com. Book your introductory call with Kellen Hunt at closeitwithkel.com. If you are trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kel. Visit closeitwithkel.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. Well, as the saying goes, timing is everything in life. And so how about the timing of this latest report from the Washington Post 
in the commander's workplace misconduct scandal. Remember, it was the Washington Post that ignited the scandal to begin with, with that initial expose in July 2020. We since then have had multiple other exposes by the Post pertaining to the workplace misconduct scandal. And on Tuesday evening, the evening before a second congressional hearing on the commander's workplace misconduct scandal, we got yet another bombshell report from the Washington Post on the scandal. I'm starting to think that the Washington Post doesn't like our commander's co-owner and co-CEO, Dan Snyder, very much. So for a while now, a major mystery in this entire workplace misconduct scandal has been what happened on Dan Snyder's plane in April 2009. Uh, We first heard of this alleged incident in December 2020, when the New York Times had an article that referenced an allegation that Dan Snyder had sexually harassed a former female team employee in 2009 and that a financial settlement had been reached. Well, the Washington Post, just a few days later in December 2020, reported that the financial settlement was for a staggering $1.6 million dollars and that the alleged incident had occurred on Dan's private plane while flying back from the Academy of Country Music Awards in Las Vegas. Then came Dan Snyder alleging that one of his now former minority partners with the team, Dwight Shar, was the source of the reveal of the settlement having been for $1.6 million. Uh, Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk on Christmas Eve 2020, Merry Christmas, uh, reported that Dan had submitted a declaration, which is a written testimony under penalty of perjury, but without being placed under oath, in pending federal litigation between Dan and the three then minority owners, Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. Dan, in what was a five-page document, contained 19 numbered paragraphs outlining Dan's belief that Shaw had engaged in an extortion campaign aimed at forcing Dan to sell the then Washington football team. Dan, in the document, initially focused on the potential connection between Shar and the Washington Post report of Dan's $1.6 million settlement, saying that a then-recent court filing by Shar and the then-other minority owners had contained, quote, irrelevant and spurious material, end quote, that when quoted in the article by the Washington Post, quote, improperly, end quote, gave, quote, the misleading impression that there was merit to the allegations of misconduct, end quote. So we had all of that, and that brings us to Tuesday evening. Again, the evening before a second congressional hearing on the commander's workplace misconduct scandal. We on Tuesday evening got a report from Will Hobson of the Washington Post providing details on what allegedly happened between Dan Snyder and a then Redskins employee, in April 2009, resulting in the reported $1.6 million settlement. Uh, The then Redskins employee was a woman. And again, the alleged incident occurred on Dan's private plane while flying back from the Academy of Country Music Awards in Las Vegas. According to this report from the Washington Post on Tuesday evening, the former Redskins employee, quote, accused Snyder of asking her for sex, groping her, and attempting to remove her clothes, end quote. So right there are specifics of what Dan allegedly did 
on the plane. We had not previously had specifics. Now we have specifics, alleged specifics, but specifics nonetheless. And these, of course, are serious alleged specifics. Again, the former Redskins employee accused Dan Snyder of asking her for sex. Okay, that's one thing. Groping her. That's another thing. And attempting to remove her clothes. That's another thing. I mean, these are serious allegations. Uh, now, this information in the Post report on Tuesday evening came from a letter sent by an attorney for the team to the then Redskins employee's lawyer in 2009. Dan, of course, denied the allegations. What we ended up having was an in-house investigation. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. An in-house investigation that was run by this guy, David Donovan, who at the time was the Redskins general counsel. Uh, David Donovan reported to Dan Snyder. This was such a sham of an investigation. Uh, the investigation, shockingly, uh, resulted in the accusation that the then Redskins employee fabricated the allegations as part of an extortion attempt. In fact, the letter from Dan's lawyer threatened the then Redskins employee with litigation. And per the Post included, quote, allegations about the woman's personal conduct in... <laughs> <laughs> including that she wore revealing clothing and flirted with other men on the trip to Las Vegas, and quote. You see, she deserved it. I didn't do anything, but she deserved it. She dressed like a hussy. She dressed like a Jezebel. What was I supposed to do, even though I didn't do anything? Uh, so we now have this in the commander's workplace misconduct scandal. Uh, we now have this among the allegations that have been levied against Dan Snyder in the workplace misconduct scandal. Now, of course, this is all alleged, all right? So you can't just assume that all of this is true. At the same time, uh, geez, $1.6 million. I mean, I don't know. If I'm innocent, I don't know that I'm paying anybody $1.6 million. But you might say, hey, maybe Dan was innocent and he's just so rich that he wanted this to go away and so he paid the woman $1.6 million. Think whatever you would like to think. You know, I would say that this latest reveal doesn't necessarily change anything in terms of what Congress can do to Dan. Congress is still rather limited with what Congress can do to Dan, but you can bet your bottom dollar that this reveal uh, will be coming up at the Wednesday congressional hearing in which uh, Dan has refused to participate and uh, from his perspective has uh, smartly refused to participate. Uh, and this latest reveal doesn't necessarily change anything regarding the NFL and Dan. I mean, the NFL has stood by Dan for this long. So it may well be that the NFL continues to stand by Dan. But what still isn't clear is how close to the edge the NFL has been with Dan. And when I say the NFL, I mean the other NFL owners. The other NFL owners are who truly control Dan's fate as commander's owner. Forget about NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, who of course will be testifying at the congressional hearing on Wednesday. We'll be doing so virtually. The other NFL owners are who truly control Dan's fate as commander's owner. At some point, there is a breaking point for the other NFL owners with Dan. We haven't yet reached that breaking point. Uh, we may never reach that breaking point. But this reveal on Tuesday evening does Dan Snyder no favors, okay? And the reveal certainly doesn't lessen the likelihood 
of the other NFL owners reaching a Dan Snyder breaking point. Maybe the reveal doesn't increase the likelihood of the other NFL owners reaching a Dan Snyder breaking point, but I think that it's safe to say that the reveal does not lessen the likelihood of the other NFL owners reaching a Dan Snyder breaking point. The reveal does Dan no favors, and you can't ignore the timing of this report from the Washington Post. Again, the evening before this second congressional hearing, this report comes out. Uh, My friends, this is not a coincidence, okay? Either someone with this letter waited until just the right time to leak the letter to the Washington Post, or the Post sat on the story until Tuesday evening. Either way, this report is another whammy for Dan Snyder, is another wallop of Dan Snyder by the Washington Post. This congressional hearing on Wednesday just got more interesting. Ultimately, maybe nothing of real substance comes from the hearing, but the hearing just got more interesting. Up next, we'll talk actual Commander's football, and this will be a feel-good segment on Commander's football. I welcome on a special guest, Eric Eager, the Vice President of Research and Development for Pro Football Focus. He is very bullish on the Commanders for the 2022 season. He'll explain why after this. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Well, as is always the case, I appreciate you listening to the Al Galdi podcast. If you have never rated the podcast, please consider doing that. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, you can give this podcast a five-star rating. And if you have never written a review of the podcast, please consider doing that. You can write a review of the podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. The review doesn't have to be long. can be just a sentence or two saying that you like the podcast. The ratings and the reviews help to make the podcast successful and they are very much appreciated. Uh, So as I have said on this podcast, I do think that the commanders have a realistic shot at a winning record 
for the 2022 regular season. I don't think that them going nine and eight or better in the 2022 regular season is some far-fetched dream. Now, you know, given the dark cloud uh, that seems to perpetually be over our team, I'm certainly not just assuming that nine and eight or better is what's coming, but looking at things analytically and objectively, nine and eight or better to me is doable. But I am a fan of the Commanders. Uh, I have been a Redskins slash Washington football team slash Commanders fan my entire sporting life. What about someone who isn't a fan of the Commanders, who thinks that them doing quite well this upcoming season is a distinct possibility? I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast right now one of the smartest people out there when it comes to talking NFL, Eric Eager, the Vice President of Research and Development for Pro Football Focus, Eric is the man who developed PFF's wins above replacement metric, PFF's war metric. You can follow Eric on Twitter at PFF underscore Eric. And Eric just came out with a terrific piece that you can read at PFF.com. Headline, NFL betting 2022, why the Washington commanders over seven and a half wins is a good bet. And there is a lot of stuff in this piece worth getting into, and we are about to get into all of that stuff here right now. Hey, Eric, how are you? Al, I'm doing well. Um, I, it, was, it was very interesting to, you know, this time of year, there's not a ton to do uh, with respect to, uh, you know, the league. You know, they're, they're all off and, and, you know, OTAs and everything are done, but you know, digging into the data a little bit, you get to, uh, you find teams sometimes that are maybe a little underrated this time of year, and I think Washington uh, you know, sort of is in that is in that category. Yeah, well, as you probably know, it's not often that we read positive things about our commanders these days. So it was nice to read what you wrote. Um, and what you wrote is what a lot of us here in commanders land feel. And I'd like to explore some of your reasons for optimism for the commanders this coming season. You actually start with Scott Turner. Uh, quote, firstly, offensive coordinator Scott Turner gave this offense a chance last year pushing all of the buttons that make for good offense, forcing low box counts, running motion, and utilizing play action at top five rates, end quote. Uh, I wonder if you could expound on that. There are a number of Commanders fans who are not fans of Scott Turner. Uh, Personally, I am a fan of Scott, and uh, you clearly are too. Yeah, you know, you were just looking at, uh, you know, one of the things we came out with um, recently was something called perfectly blocked runs, basically looking at the PFF grades uh, and, you know, looking at, you know, how was the play perfectly blocked up? Um, and, you know, the, the Washington football team last year, uh, you know, they did a great job of basically, you know, not losing in the run game. And unfortunately, Antonio Gibson, whether that be injuries or whether that be just ineffectiveness, uh, you know, was unable. Like he averaged something like five yards a carry on perfectly blocked runs. Where a guy like Jonathan Taylor, when you blocked the play up perfectly, was in that sort of nine and a half yards per play, uh, you know, sort of category. So there were there were plays that were being blocked up, and then the skill position player, you know, was were not making plays. Um, you know, in addition to that, um, you know, Taylor Heineke, like he did pretty well on play action, like 9.1 yards per attempt. Um, you know, they, they schemed up a lot of play action. They ran a lot of play action early downs. I think it was something like in the 40%, you know, 40%, 45% of plays on early downs for play action, which is great. Um, you know, but Heineke, when they did not have the benefit of play action, and they, you know, and their schedule is a lot harder in 2021 than it was in 2020, so there were just game scripts 
relationships that were not conducive to uh, them having deception, like he just struggled. It was, you know, less than six yards of pass attempt uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think a lot of people like Heineke. I think a lot of people liked how he performed in the playoff game against Tampa Bay. Um, and I think a lot of people like Antonio Gibson, especially in the fantasy community. But you take a step back and look and say, did these guys really? I thought Turner gave them a chance uh, to be, you know, to be effective last year. And they just didn't take advantage of it. And so, um, to me, I think even if you upgrade, you know, in a minor way, you know, Gibson gets healthy, you know, Wentz over Heineke, I think you're going to see uh, an actual increase in production from this team. Yeah, and the Commanders having Carson Wentz as their starting quarterback could mean many good things for Commanders receivers this coming season. Your second reason for optimism for the Commanders this coming season does have to do with a receiving core that you say, quote, promises to be one of the best in football, end quote. Uh, And you also defend the Commanders having taken Jahan Dotson with the number 16 pick in the 2022 NFL draft, uh, as opposed to what some have said, which is that the commanders overdrafted Dotson. You know, it's been a while since uh, our team had a truly great receiving core. What jumps out at you about this commander's receiving core? Yeah, I mean, it's somebody like I, you know, I root for the Chiefs. I, you know, and and I have a lot of contacts in the league. I, 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 I I didn't not message my my friends on Kansas City repeatedly during the time uh, during the draft season, saying draft Jahan Dotson. Um, you know, they, the the prop for him was twenty nine and a half. So people thought he was going near the Chiefs' pick. So like, I was kind of stoked. And then when when the Commanders took him, uh, it was still it was a little high. But I mean, they traded back, right? So they went from eleven to sixteen. They got some picks from New Orleans. So you know, and I and I think Dotson is the that that sort of like level player in this draft. I mean, you look at you know, much like Terry McLaurin in Washington, like Dotson did not play with great quarterbacks at Penn State, you know, Sean Clifford. And, and, you know, that team won games they maybe shouldn't have won because of Dotson's ability to separate, his ability to track the ball um, down the football field. And, you know, that that kind of stuff when you, you know, when you're looking for a receiver in round one, like you can look for the bigger guys like Drake London, you can look for, um, you know, the, the speed, you know, the Jameson Williams, but like to put it all together, I think Dotson is that player that, you know, could really compliment McLaurin and, and replace him if, if they, if they can't figure something out from a long-term perspective later. But, uh, you you know, you look at Diami Brown as a good prospect, you know, Curtis Samuel is a good football player. Uh, you know, the tight end is good for that team. And, and so, you know, with Wentz, you know, you need to give Wentz weapons. Like, I think that that's the, that's the, the storyline about Carson Wentz. You need to protect him and you need to give him weapons. I think Washington has done that. We're talking Commanders with Eric Eager, the Vice President of Research and Development for Pro Football Focus. He recently came out with a piece that you can read at pff.com, headline NFL Betting 2022, Why the Washington Commanders Over 7.5 Wins is a good bet. As I said earlier, you developed Pro Football Focus's Wins Above Replacement metric, PFF's war metric. As you write in your piece, Terry McLaurin has averaged, quote, 0.39 war per season over the last three years, despite having to deal with an absolute potpourri of horribleness at the quarterback position. And quote, just to put the 0.39 war into context, I know that war numbers for non-quarterbacks are quite low. So a receiver who averages 0.39 war is actually quite good, correct? Yeah, yeah. So you think about, um, we assume a team full of replacement players is like a three-win team. So, you know, an average team is going to have somewhere around five and a half uh, war 
Um, you know, the quarterback usually, you know, so like just for, for, uh, you know, uh, scale sake, like Josh Allen was worth three and a half wins last year for the bills. Right. So you think about an average quarterback, probably about two wins. Um, so you have three and a half wins to give out to all of your other, you know, 21 starters. Right. So it's going to, it's going to get it gobbled up pretty quick. A guy like McLaurin is taking up a significant amount of Washington's win shares, uh, just by being who he is. And I think, you know, a lot of his opportunity base, right? He's not even getting the opportunities that, you know, some of these great receivers are getting um, by, you know, like passes being accurate, things like that down the football field. He's still producing a lot. Usually, you know, I, for a non-quarterback, a one win above replacement is worth about $50 million. Um, You know, so he's been worth about $20 million a season uh, in 2022 dollars, and that's without any help from the quarterback. Wow. And it certainly seems like Terry McLaurin will be making at least $20 million per year with his next contract, uh, if not more. Uh, Quarterback, when we last spoke on this podcast, we discussed what the commanders might slash should do in their quest this offseason for a franchise quarterback. They obviously ended up trading for Carson Wentz. And look, it's impossible not to have questions about Wentz and why he's on his third team in three seasons. And you certainly cannot love what the commanders gave up and are taking on in acquiring Wentz. But uh, you do see him as a clear upgrade over what the team has had at quarterback in recent seasons. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I, I ask this question all the time. If, if you would have taken Wentz's you know, season last year, where you look at 27 touchdowns, seven interceptions, um, you know, pretty good for completion percentage. Uh, you know, not a, not the greatest PFF grade in the, wor- in the world, but he did have more big time throws and turnover worthy plays. Like he he certainly like is a top twenty quarterback in the league. If you take his season of seventeen games and you reorder them, let's say let's say the Jacksonville game in week eighteen happened in week ten, uh, and 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 so on. Do the Colts move on from him? Is is actually a good question because you know that team was nine and eight. Uh, they lost their last two games in many reasons because of COVID, like situations that they wouldn't otherwise have to deal with. Offensive line play went from being really good to really bad because guys like Quentin Nelson got COVID and stuff like that, and and Wentz crumbled. And and I think you know Washington fans, having seen him with the Eagles, know the good and the bad. Right? They look at twenty seventeen when you know that team's got Lane Johnson, Brandon Brooks. Uh, Jason Peters and and you know they they put Alshon Jeffrey, Torrey Smith, Zach Ertz and and so on and so forth around him. He was an MVP candidate, you know. Um, and Doug Peterson He's a good play caller, but I think we've established that you know Scott Turner's I think better than a lot of people think. Um, you know, this team, you look at the offensive line. Charles Leno was an extremely good signing last year. He, he played really well. I know they lose uh, Sheriff, but they they don't ex- you know with Norwell there. Like I, I think it's you know. Not a lateral move, but a, a fairly okay move. You know, they have an offensive line without real weaknesses. Um, and, and, you know, as, as I said before, the receiving core is good. The schedule is easier this year. They, they, I think they have the fourth easiest schedule in the NFL. There's just a lot of things like in Wentz's favor that I don't think people are, are baking in. And, and we've seen him. Like, he, he's had good, he played good football when the, the cards are in his favor. And I think that that's one of the situations they're in this year now. The big question is: Is obviously, do they give him a long-term deal? Do they do they you know buy into him as the long-term answer quarterback? That's always the risk when you when you sort of go with one of these middle-class quarterbacks because you're never going to bottom out and be able to get one of the high-end guys. But I think for this year, I think he's perfectly fine as a starter for Washington. 
So now that we do have the benefit of hindsight and we see, say, what the Indianapolis Colts gave up to trade for Atlanta Falcons quarterback Matt Ryan, and we see what happened with the veteran quarterbacks who were available in free agency, and we see what happened with the quarterbacks in the 2022 NFL Draft, should the commanders have done something different at quarterback this offseason, or do you see what they did trading for Carson Wentz as actually a pretty good play? I think it was fine. I think the Matt Ryan thing, you know, I don't know if he was available for that price to every team. You know what I mean? Like, and, yeah. and there's certainly, you know, they flirted with Watson, which I think significantly decreased their, the Atlanta Falcons, uh, you know, bargaining value. I mean, two third round picks is not great, but they did recoup those assets in the trade, some of the assets in the trade. Uh, back from 11 so that that, that was helpful um, they are taking on a lot of money but they have the money to you know they have the ability to take that money on which again is is a, is a testament maybe to their their team building they were not going to go after Deshaun Watson given all the issues that they have and their you know uh, you know with the legal stuff they have with, with Snyder and folks like that so I, I don't I, I, I don't mind this at all and when you look at the quarterback position like Kenny Pickett wins 20. And every other guy, including Malik Willis, people a lot of people like, went in the third round, right? This was not a quarterback draft. And so, you know, be that as it may, next year might be a quarterback draft. And I, and I, like I said, I think if they win eight or nine games, uh, make the playoffs and stuff like that, they're going to be in arms like the way from some of those guys. But, um, but for, but I, I think that they made the best of a bad situation, honestly. And, and I don't know necessarily if Matt Ryan has it left. You know, I, arm strength was an issue last year. Um, and he's a better guy playing in a dome, frankly. Uh, and so uh, I think they ended up with the, with the, probably the right quarterback in this situation. I've spent a lot of time on the podcast looking into Carson Wentz's 2021 season. And one of the things that I must say is that the more I dig, the more I like. And I'm trying to make sure that I'm not just talking myself into liking the trade, but Wentz quantifiably was one of the best deep passers in the NFL last season. Pro Football Focus ranked Wentz as the number nine deep passer in the NFL last season. Both football outsiders in the NFL's next-gen stats have very positive data on Wentz as a deep passer last season. Is being a good deep passer something that can carry over year to year, or is that more of a singular year thing and you can't necessarily count on that thing being a thing the following year? It's not that's the most stable thing in the world because it's a small sample of passes, but um, I, I think what's clear is that he has the ability to throw deep passes, right? He does have a strong arm, and that, you know, whereas somebody, I, I, Tua actually, Tua Tungabailoa actually had pretty good deep numbers last year, but, like, I think, you know, you can somebody like him, you can kind of eliminate him year to year by just saying, well, he doesn't actually have the arm strength. Um, Wentz certainly has the arm strength. That doesn't mean they're going to be great. Um, but given, you know, where Indianapolis was, they had Michael Pittman who emerged last year was a very good player, but, um, you know, they didn't really have anybody outside of him. Um, you know, Washington having multiple players that can go down the field, I think is going to be helpful. Like, I, I think there is some positivity there because, you know, he, he does have the ability to make those plays. A final reason that you have for optimism for the Commanders this coming season is their defense, with the idea being that there was expected regression for the defense last season, 
uh, primarily due to the very difficult schedule that Washington had. But this season, with a softer schedule, at least on paper, the potential really is there for this commander's defense to have a bounce-back season. Are we in the NFL just now at the point at which you just can't count on having a great defense because defense is such a function of the teams that you play and the quarterbacks who you play. And so the days of trying to build a team for which the defense leads the way are over. I just don't think you can reliably, you know, win with defense year after year after year. I mean, even you look across uh, town a little bit and you look at the Ravens, for example, and, you know, when Lamar was on his rookie deal, they were able to spend 66% of their salary cap on defense, you know? So, and that was a couple of years, right? And then, you know, then they start to buy into Rodney Stanley and then they, you know, Lamar's fifth-year option comes up and, and they have to chip away at that defense. And we saw last year with injuries and stuff like that, the Ravens fell apart defensively, you know, and it's just such a weak link system that, you know, when I, and I, I talked about this in the piece, like I made the bear case for the for Washington last year just because I was saying like, there's just a lot of fragilities on the team, right? There's a lot of things that, you know, if you know Montez Sweat goes down because he's not vaccinated, or you know, a William Jackson can't play a few games or struggles because William Jackson has been a player who's had great seasons and not so great seasons. Um, you know, if you don't get what you're, you think of out of Cameron Curl after a great rookie year, like you know, the, then the whole thing comes crumbling down. Um, I, I just, I, to answer your question, I don't think you can reliably. Uh, as a down payment, have defense as your reason that a team's going to contend, and that was always, I think, the issue with with folks talking about Washington last year was, you know, they they played a schedule in 2020 where I think you know the best quarterback they beat was an over the hill Ben Roethlisberger, and they got a lot of Nick Mullins, and they got a lot of Ben DiNucci's and and Andy Dalton's other schedule, and it was just not going to be able to turn around with. Uh, you know, a season where they had a bunch of Tom Brady's on their schedule. And so uh, this year it's less so, um, but the talent's there, right? Like the talent is there. The, the front four is certainly talented. The secondary has players that can play. Um, so uh, to me, I think the goal should always be to be a defense that doesn't kill you. And, and then, uh, you know, and I think most teams want uh, in the ultimate, you know, I think team building strategy, you want to put the, the game in the hands of your quarterback as much as you can. And, and I think, um, you know, last year they did sometimes in Washington, and Taylor Heineke wasn't good enough. I think if they do this year with Wentz, uh, I think they'll be surprised at how many times Wentz can pull through for them. And so just to piggyback on that team-building point, in today's pass-happy NFL, should NFL teams simply be devoting the bulk of draft capital and salary cap dollars to building up offense, or should NFL teams still be spending a good amount of draft capital and salary cap dollars on defense? It's interesting. I, you know, I think I look at the Bengals, which like we are the world here. The Bengals are the are the model for team building in the NFL. Um, but like you look at, you know, Burrow and Higgins and Chase, uh, Jonah Williams, like those are their first round picks over the past few years, premium offensive positions. And then on defense, they use free agency dollars because if you hit on the young players in the draft on the offensive side of the ball, you're getting, you know, Jamar Chase, who's a last season, you know, something like a $25 million player for like $6 million a year, you know, and so you could take that surplus. Last year, the Bengals secondary had six players, I believe, or six or seven players with over a thousand snap season with another team. And, you know, they had Trey Waynes, and Trey Waynes busted, but they had Eli Apple and Shadobi Awuzie behind them, right? And, 
you know, when you don't put all your eggs in one basket because you have the resources to sort of spread your risk on defense, that really helps. Um, so, you know, Washington, you know, they drafted a lot of guys in the first round to play defensive line. I don't think defensive line is not a premium position. Like, you'd love to have Chase Young, uh, you know, the same way that the Browns love having Miles Garrett. But I would not spend, you know, all my first-round picks on a defensive line, and I would not spend – and, and I, I don't know if I necessarily spent big dollars on a guy like William Jackson. I might spend th- that money on two players uh, for whom I need one uh, to work out. Great insight. Eric Eager, the Vice President of Research and Development for Pro Football Focus. Make sure that you check out his piece on PFF.com, headline NFL Betting 2022, Why the Washington Commanders Over 7.5 Wins is a good bet. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for your time and all the best to you. Thanks for having me on. Take care. All right. Well, we on Tuesday night had game one of the 2022 Battle of the Beltways. Uh, game one in the first of two two-game series this season between the Nationals and the Orioles. The Battle of Masson was on display on Tuesday night. Uh, this first series is taking place at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in Baltimore. And this first series began with a 3 nothing win for the Nats at the O's on Tuesday night. So instead of the O's being in the win column, we had Nats manager Davey Martinez being proud of the boys. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey. Proud of the boys. Greater than O's in the win column, at least on Tuesday night. So in this 2022 regular season, the Nats now are 25 and 46. Uh, Yes, last in the National League East, and yes, second worst record in the National League. And the O's now are 30 and 39. Yes, last in the American League East. Uh, The story of this game on Tuesday night was the Nats pitching. Uh, A Nats pitching staff that was on fumes during a stretch of 14 games in 13 days, all of a sudden now is rolling. Uh, The Nats, like the O's, had an off day on Monday. And then on Tuesday night, the Nats got a third consecutive strong outing from a starting pitcher. Uh, This past Saturday, Josiah Gray in the Nats 2-1 10-inning loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park. Six scoreless innings. Now, the six scoreless innings came on 117 pitches. Gray had to battle, uh, but he won in terms of pitching well. Uh, This past Sunday afternoon, Jackson Tatro in just his second career Major League regular season start. Shockingly good. Uh, He and the Nats 9-3 win over the Phillies at Nationals Park. Three runs, all of which were unearned in seven innings. Tatro became just the third Nats pitcher in this 2022 regular season to complete at least seven innings in a game. And then on Tuesday night, Eric Fetty in this 3-0 win at the Orioles, six scoreless innings. Uh, Fetty gave up just two hits, both of which were singles. He had four strikeouts versus one walk. Uh, That was encouraging given the extent to which Fetty had been walking guys this season. Fetty came into the game with a walks per nine innings in the 2022 regular season of 4.45. That is a very high walk rate. And Fetty on Tuesday night did throw 97 pitches, 59 strikes versus 38 balls. So if there's a nit to pick, it would be that Fetty didn't go deeper into the game. I mean, he only gave up two hits. He only issued one walk, and yet he only lasted for six innings. Uh, Fetty is not pitch efficient. He really wasn't pitch efficient on Tuesday night, but he was effective. Here was Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Tuesday night on Eric Fetty. 
Uh, Fetty, you know, he, he, he attacked the strike zone and got ahead. You know, still, you know, as I talked to him after, after he came out, um, it's that put, put, away, put away pitch. You know, we got to get him better at that, you know, and work on it. That he doesn't have to try to be too fine, you know, and um, just, throw, you know, just make the next pitch and try to get, get out, you know, three pitches or less. Um, when he does that, he's going to pitch, give us seven innings, you know, which is or eight innings, which is great. So, but he, you know, he, he did well. Like I said, he, he, uh, he got ahead of a lot of hitters tonight. You know, fell behind, you know, 2-2, two, 3-2, two, two, but um, you know, when you need to throw a strike, you throw a strike. Yes, he did. Uh, here was O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night on uh, the struggles of Orioles batters against Eric Fetty. Well, I thought Fetty threw the ball extremely well. He really pitched the edge as well. We, we helped him out by chasing a little bit, um, but we just didn't score many balls up tonight. <laughs> um, I think our at-bats for the mo- most part these last few weeks have been really good and tonight we just didn't uh and we got us he threw a lot of pitches there through six but we just didn't have a whole lot of hard contact and um he had the, the cutter work in a good cutter sinker mix and we just didn't barrel many balls up yeah, you know, this was easily Eric Fetty's best start in five starts. Uh, this, to me, was Fetty's best start since the Nats one nothing win over the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park on May 25th. Fetty in that game, six scoreless innings, six strikeouts versus one walk. Uh, Fetty was really good in that game. You can't put what he did on Tuesday night on the same level as what Fetty did in that game against the Dodgers because the Dodgers are the Dodgers and the Orioles, at least for now, are the Orioles. But Fetty was good on Tuesday night. Nice job by Eric Fetty on Tuesday night and nice job by the Nats bullpen on Tuesday night. Three Nats relievers combined for three scoreless innings with six strikeouts. Uh, This was the Nats' A bullpen on display and the A bullpen earned an A+. Uh, This was really good. Kyle Finnegan, Carl Edwards Jr., and Tanner Rainey. Uh, Finnegan normally is the Nats' eighth inning guy but he on Tuesday night was used as the Nats' seventh inning guy because the heart of the Orioles lineup was coming up. And what did Finnegan do? Scoreless bottom of the seventh with three strikeouts. Now, he did give up a two-out full count double to Adley Rutschman to right field, but Finnegan's first two strikeouts were of the Orioles' numbers four and five batters in Austin Hayes and Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, Hayes, by the way, really rough night on Tuesday night, 0 for 4 with four strikeouts. Uh, Carl Edwards Jr. then tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth as he continues to roll. Edwards now in this 2022 regular season for the Nats, ERA of 282. Keep in mind, the Nats in February signed Edwards to a minor league contract. This is a veteran player on a minor league contract. It was only on May 10th that the Nats brought Edwards up from AAA Rochester. Uh, The Nats on May 10th selected Edwards' contract from Rochester, and he has been really good for the Nats here so far this season. And then Tanner Rainey on Tuesday night, a scoreless bottom of the ninth with two strikeouts, which were of the Orioles' numbers three and four batters in Anthony Santander and Austin Hayes. And Rainey's two strikeouts came on a total of eight pitches. So the Nats' bullpen was superb on Tuesday night. Nats' pitching really shut down the O's on Tuesday night. The O's for the game, no runs, just four hits, just one walk, 10 strikeouts, and 0 for 1 with runners in scoring position. Yeah, the O's for the game, just one at-bat with a runner in scoring position. Now, it's not like the Nats offense was great on Tuesday night, but the Nats offense was good enough. Three runs, six hits, three walks, two for 11 
with runners in scoring position. Uh, Lane Thomas had another good game in this month of June. The Lane train on Tuesday night, he was an at starting center fielder and number nine batter, two for four, did strike out twice, but Thomas in the top of the seventh, a leadoff single to center field, and Thomas in the Nats, one run ninth, a two-out first pitch, opposite field solo homer to right field for a 3-0 Nats lead. Your Lane Thomas slash line in this month of June, batting average of 310, on base percentage of 372, slugging percentage of 577. I mean, Lane Thomas has been really good in this month of June. Uh, Nelson Cruz, the former Oriole, remember. Uh, Nelson Cruz had a big season for the O's in 2014. Well, he had a big hit for the Nats on Tuesday night. Cruz in the Nats, one run first, a two-out first pitch, RBI double to left field for a one nothing Nats lead. Uh, Cruz on Tuesday night as the Nats starting DH in number four batter, one for four, with the RBI double, did strike out twice. You know, the Nats on Tuesday night only had six hits, but four of the hits were extra base hits, a uh, home run and three doubles. Uh, Kate Ruiz as the Nats starting catcher, number six batter, one for four with a double. Uh, Ruiz in the Nats, one run second, a leadoff double to the right center field gap. Cesar Hernandez as the Nats starting second baseman and number one batter, one for five with a double and an RBI fielder's choice. Uh, Hernandez in the Nats, one run first, a first pitch leadoff double to the right field warning track on a fly ball that was actually uh, pretty badly misplayed by the Orioles right fielder, Anthony Santander. Uh, Juan Soto, Josh Bell, and Luis Garcia on Tuesday night did have tough games. Soto as the Nats starting right fielder and number two batter, 0 for 3 with a walk, left five men on base. Bell as the Nats starting first baseman and number three batter, one for four with a single, left five men on base. And Garcia as the Nats starting shortstop and number five batter, he was up to the number five spot, uh, 0 for 4 with a strikeout, left three men on base. But that was notable, Luis Garcia being bumped up to that number five spot. Uh, that's good. I mean, Luis Garcia had been hitting very well, and uh, he you know, does deserve to be moved up in the lineup, or at least did deserve to be moved up in the lineup. And also good to see that Luis Garcia is remaining as the Nats starting shortstop, even now with Alcides Escobar back. Now, this is a no-brainer, okay, that Luis Garcia should remain as the Nats' number one shortstop, and Alcides Escobar should take a backseat to Garcia, given that Garcia is young, given that the Nats are rebuilding. Uh, but Alcides Escobar is back, and it's worth noting, uh, Davey Martinez has made this clear, and Alcides Escobar has said, I'm okay with this, at least publicly he's saying that, uh, now being a backup. Uh, the Nats on Tuesday afternoon reinstated shortstop Alcides Escobar from the 10-day injured list. He had been on that since June 1st due to a right hamstring strain. He ended up playing uh, a four-game minor league rehab assignment for AAA Rochester. Uh, as for Tuesday night's game from an Orioles perspective, uh, not many positives for the O's. The biggest positive uh, was their starting pitcher, Jordan Lyles. Uh, he was good for the first time in five starts. He needed a good start, and he had a good start on Tuesday night. Lyles, two runs in six and a third innings. Uh, he gave up five hits, three doubles and two singles. He issued three walks and a wild pitch, recorded four strikeouts, threw 92 pitches, 54 strikes, versus 38 balls. Uh, Lyles was coming off having been scratched due to illness. Uh, he for the Orioles' previous game, the 2-1 win over the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon was a late scratch due to illness, but he ended up pitching on Tuesday night, and he ended up pitching pretty well on Tuesday night. Here was Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night on Jordan Lyles. Yeah, you know, especially after that second inning, after the, you know, we got the double play ball, it didn't turn, but after the second inning, he was really good and um, went into the seventh inning for us, kept us right there. We just didn't have any offense tonight to, to help him out. You said you're going through a 
lately. In that first and second inning, it seemed like he was kind of grinding again. What's his demeanor like to be able to just push through that and, and then put in a solid out? Well, I think he's been in that situation many times as a veteran and and um, pitched for a lot of years. So having traffic or maybe not having your best stuff, really trying to find it a little bit later, I think that's not uh, abnormal for him and or any pitcher that's been around for a while. So um, he did a great job of finding it, uh, getting a little sharper as the game went on and went into the seventh. That kind of lead by example start where you maybe are bidding a little bit early, we're still able to get a six, six. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, you know, kind of hung a breaking ball there to Cruz there in the first, and then um, we didn't help him out much in the second inning. But you know, one earned run and six and uh, six and a third. You know, it's pretty solid. Nice, did a great job. All right, so game one for the Nats at the O's ended up being a pitcher's duel. Uh, we'll see what game two gives us. Game two for the Nats at the O's is on Wednesday night at 7.05. Patrick Corbin versus Tyler Wells. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 342, will feature reaction to and analysis of whatever goes down at this congressional hearing on Wednesday regarding the commander's workplace misconduct scandal. Will Roger Goodell at the hearing take a bullet for Dan Snyder? Will Roger at the hearing turn? on Dan. Uh, will we have a bombshell reveal at the hearing of the bombshell reveal from the Washington Post on Tuesday evening, providing details on the alleged incident on Dan's plane in April 2009? Will absolutely nothing of note happen at the hearing? Uh, lots of possibilities. I'll discuss whatever does happen. Also on Thursday's show, I'll post game Wednesday night's game two for the Nationals at the Orioles at 7.05. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. Oh, my brother, testify! <laughs>